Chedor La Omer, king of uh, Elam. <laughs> the word, stop right here. I deliberately, <laughs> I deliberately did, didn't want to read this first paragraph. Genesis chapter 14. Let's do this. Do it. Just do it. <laughs> Genesis 14. I'm war, excited. War of the Kings. We're jumping war straight in. Justin, get us yep. started. <laughs> Let's do this. Okay. Verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. <laughs> Stop right here. I deliberately, <laughs> I deliberately didn't, didn't want to read this first paragraph. Keep going, though. I like it. Verse 2, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zor, all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated. Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon. <laughs> I tried to look. I was going to break at some point. <laughs> okay. Who verse lived, eight. Verse eight. Keep this rolling, bro. Yeah, who lived in Hazazon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma. And the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Very <laughs> mad respect for you there. Uh, congratulations. Thank you for taking the bullet oh. there. Um, let me go ahead and jump straight in here. That's all extremely confusing. 
at this moment. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's thoroughly confused. I know I was. So let me help organize this in a way that's a little bit better understood. So we start out talking about several kings, and these are the first four kings listed right here that Justin just mentioned, King of Shinar, King of Elasar, King of Elam, and the King of Goim. The primary guy you really want to pay attention to here is Chedor Laomer. This is the guy you really want to pay attention to. And these four kings that they made war with these five kings right here. And the ones you really want to pay attention to here are King of Sodom, Barak King of Sodom, and the Bersha King of Gomorrah. Now, it seems that all these came as allies to the Valley of Siddim, and that is the Salt Sea. And the Salt Sea seems to represent the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has a very high salt content such that whenever you go into the Dead Sea, you can actually find pictures of people almost floating on top of the water. So if you imagine lying on your back and floating, you know, every, people have been in water and pools and lakes and oceans and whatnot. If you kind of lay on your back, you can kind of float on top of the water. Well, it's really interesting to see there's so much salt content. There's so much content in the water that you float really on top of it. It's very fascinating. Anyways, so it seems that there was a rebellion here. And at some point, there was a big war between these nine kings and they split into two camps as mentioned previously and if when you if you scroll down here a little bit you find that uh, there was four kings against five those were listed up here and the main person you really uh, want to pay attention to is this cheddar lamer guy and as they defeated, the, the four kings defeated the five um, in this valley. These kings, hold on one second. Was it in the, was the battle in the valley? Give me one sec. And the kings came out and they're raid for battle against them in the valley. Yes. So they did, they were battling in this valley and so as they were escaping as they were trying to run away right whenever you're losing a battle and it's clear you're about to lose you throw on your nikes or your adidas or whatever people are running these days and you run for the hills so that's exactly what the five kings did they ran for the hills and as they fled particularly the kings of sodom and gomorrah they actually fell into these tar pits, which uh, obviously would trap you and likely lead you to an untimely death. But some of those actually survived who were running away. And 
the four kings, they ended up taking all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food supply, and they left. But they also took someone they shouldn't have messed with. All right. Sometimes you, someone has friends in the right places and you just don't want to mess with those, those people that have the right connections in life. Well, guess what? These four kings, they took Lot. And as we know, that is Abram's nephew. And they not only took Lot, but they took his possessions. And that was just not a that was just not a good idea. They didn't know who they were messing with. Justin, thoughts on this passage? I agree. They didn't know who they were messing with. I do have thoughts. Um, I mean, I I don't have any better thoughts than what you just did. You just you nailed it, man. You nailed it. Now I want to say. Um, I have thoughts on Abram's response in the next passage. Um, I agree that they didn't know who they were messing with. Um, and so I'd like to comment on that after we get uh, those verses read. But Perfect. yeah, man, I agree. I mean, we, the, the point is that we do have this area where there are these kings and there are the, these militaries, these people groups. Um, and I mean, there, there's conflict going on, right? I mean, it, it's a hostile world. Uh, for people who are traveling a lot like Abram and Lot, right? It's it, This isn't just this easy deal. It's that they have issues they have to deal with um, and, and where they're going. But yeah. Cool. Let me read this next section and then I'll let you say your piece. Verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Nice. So I think this is an exciting passage because it gives us a different perspective on Abram that I feel like this is uh, this unique sight or view that we have of him that we don't, that we didn't have of him before. Um, so it says here, he let out his trained men, right? So these are, these are, I mean, I, I get a view of, of Abram here as being a warrior, right? <clears throat> because so he's able to just go with his um, squad or with his entourage and, and defeat, I guess, a king, right? That, that well, well, one of the kings did this. So he's able to go defeat a king's military with his squad. And so what I'm not sure is it said led out of his trained men born at his house, 318. So like, I guess who trained those men? Um, if they were really born in, in, I guess, his estate and he trained them, he's got to be a legit warrior. And also he's got to be a legit warrior in the sense that he led them, right? If you're leading trained guys in a battle, <clears throat> I mean, you would be a, 
uh, I guess the a very you would have to be very trained to do that, or else you would have let one of them lead. Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or what one one of them would have led if 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 you didn't have adequate training. And so that's really cool to think that. Um, I mean, Abram can just go almost defeat a whole society um, to get back a lot and, and the possessions. And so now obviously God's sovereignty, right? I mean, God, God's, God's on Abram's side. And so, so that's a factor. I don't want to say it isn't, but it doesn't, I guess, based on the information, the, the way Moses wrote this, there's definitely a human tactical side of this when he said he let out trained men. Um, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing a stark contrast, Abram, in this passage. You know, previously he went to Egypt with his wife and he feared death in that situation. And so much so that he lied about or misled the Pharaoh of Egypt that Sarai was his sister and not his, in fact, his wife. So we kind of have this like almost scared, timid uh, Abram in the prior chapter. Then all of a sudden we have this kind of new and improved Abram who's, you know, willing to go to battle in order to save his nephew. And um, yeah. to me, it seems, um, and as we work this chapter, we'll see this a little bit more, but Abram seems like he's a, he's a bit more confident than he was previously. And so, yeah, um, so Lot gets saved. Um, yes, he does. These kings, they end up messing with the wrong guy. Abram goes out, defeats him, and gets back Lot. Now, there's going to be a couple of people that are, that are going to benefit from this, right? Um, there's going to be some people, some kings, who previously lost the battle, who are going to benefit from Abram coming in and putting his foot down and wiping the floor with these other kings. Let's dig into that with this next section. Justin. Let's do it, yo. Starting in verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheve, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their share. <clears throat> now, something really cool, I want to talk about Melchizedek first. Melchizedek is a really cool, interesting, mysterious person. 
in the scriptures, and there's different views on him. So Melchizedek is also covered in the book of Hebrews, uh, most notably in uh, chapter 7. So chapter 7 of Hebrews, starting in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So there's been some different views on, on this, this Melchizedek guy. Some people feel that he was what they call a pre-incarnate Christ, meaning that he, um, he was Jesus who physically appeared in the Old Testament. Um, some people, and, and the reason that they, they think the evidence for him being a pre-incarnate Christ was in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 7, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. And that's part about he, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So the, the connection, though, that was the reason the author of Hebrews even brought this up was because the, the whole book, the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, right? Because it was written to the Hebrew people, and it was talking about how why Christ is superior to Moses, to the angels, to all these things. And so one of the things when you're talking about Christ is your Christ is king, but then also Christ is high priest. So if he's king, that's kind of easy to present in the sense that he's from the tribe of Judah, because the tribe of Judah is from the tribe of kings. But how is he also a priest? Because a priest came from the tribe of Levi. So the point that is being made here is that Christ had to be attached to a priestly lineage that was superior to that of Levi. And the argument that the author of Hebrews was making here was that was Melchizedek because Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, meaning he was in submission to him spiritually. And Levi came from Abram. So Levi, being one of Abram's descendants, was in submission to Melchizedek. Therefore, Christ, being the rightful king in the line of Judah, his priestly lineage or his priestly line or whatever comes more in line with Melchizedek, which is superior to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, but, but getting back to was Melchizedek a real person? Was he either a pre-incarnate Christ or a theophany? We've talked about theophanies before, right? A physical manifestation of God. Um, but to be more specific, he would have been maybe a pre-incarnate Christ if you take that view. Um, so there, there's split views. You know, some people feel like, well, no, he was a real guy. He wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ. And that's how they were able to compare Christ's lineage to this real priest um, that was just a godly man. And they explain verse three in Hebrews seven as meaning without father, without mother, without genealogy, just that he was a mysterious guy that, that was not a recorded genealogy. Not that he didn't actually have one, but just mm. that no one knew it. Uh, because uh, uh, of the mysteriousness of him. So anyway, the point is that there's different views. Um, 
whether you believe uh, Melchizedek was an actual person or a pre-incarnate Christ doesn't change anything theologically. Um, but he is an interesting character, and he is rarely mentioned throughout Scripture. But when he is, it is mysterious. Well, he's very high regarded. I mean, definitely. Well, he's high regarded, and, and that's how we can link. That's why he was used to to compare the uh, the superiority of Christ's priestlyhood. Definitely. This to me seems like the first reference of a priest in the Bible, for that matter. I agree. So it seems it definitely does seem interesting. I think the last righteous man we ran into was Noah, aside from maybe Abram, right? And so now you introduce this third character, and it seems like there are these righteous people that are floating around, and it's not just Abram, <laughs> Abram at this point, obviously, right? We're introducing a new person that obviously is God-fearing and um, worships God. So, you know, Henry, th th that's a great point. I would like to tag onto that. You were talking about there are these godly people that, that are out there and are around. And so that fits well with um, some scholars believe Job actually lived around the time of Abram. And so a Job would have been another very godly person who, even though he didn't interact with Abram, he was a godly person out there existing lot like you were talking about around the same time. And Job is another person that comes up a little bit um, later in the Bible as it was written. However, the Bible is generally written in a chronological manner. However, Job um, seems to be in the timeline of earlier than when it was actually where it shows up in the Bible for Correct, that matter. Yeah. So. Anyways, um, I would also, um, I think it's very fascinating here as well that you see that the king of Sodom says to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I made Abram a rich man. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. Let them take their share. So another interesting moment where Abram is refusing to accept riches, which is very interesting thing, right? I mean, how many people you know or, you know, have the opportunity to receive money that essentially they earned and they refuse? That's a very unique um, person, a unique situation. And clearly, Abram cares more at this point about the promise that God made to him. And also the, the reputation that his behavior reflects on God. And his, like and his reputation. Yeah, absolutely. He cares more about that than worldly possessions. So, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see, a, a, I think, a pretty, you know, cool guy. 
listen, Abram made mistakes previously. He's going to make more mistakes, but um, you're finding somebody who's doing, who's attempting to do their best um, to put really God first in their life. So definitely a rich passage here and really excited to get some, get some, a little bit more action, right? Who says the Bible is not full of action? Um, I guess nobody says that, <laughs> nope. but it is, there's some action in here and yeah, this is a pretty exciting passage. Um, any final thoughts? I agree with what you were saying, man. You know, Abram's a dynamic character. And I think there are times in the story when we see a spirit, him, him maturing spiritually. But, but like you're saying, that's not going to be the last. He, we're going to read about more mistakes that he's, he's going to make. But ultimately, man, he, Abram is going to have um, some, he's going to do some things that are impressive as far as faith is concerned, especially like, um, you know, he has no written Bible. He has no prior history of how God works. And so all this is just like his first encounter that he's just trusting God uh, and doing these things. And so obviously his, his great, one of his greatest acts of faith is coming up and it's very impressive. And so, um, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, he's a dynamic character for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you again for the, imparting your wisdom. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, hope to see you in chapter 15. We're going to jump straight into that. Have a great day. See you guys.